0: Kings and kingdoms. Every single age of this world is laced with those two themes: kings and kingdoms. And it may not seem like it at first, but every, everything that we experience is really affected in a lot of ways by the authorities that are over us and exercising power or rule. And in the end, good or poor use of authority and power will have an effect on us. Is relevant to our lives, who is an authority over a people. And many of us, we could probably rattle off a, a number of memories about how authority was used in our lives, either in a good way or a bad way. It doesn't have to be our government. Uh, it can be in the home. It can be in, in school. It can be at work. Teacher, a boss, a parent even. Even our, our fictional stories capture themes of good and poor use and exercise of authority and of power. So from the emperor in Star Wars to the wicked stepmom in uh, Cinderella, and, and from Sauron in the Lord of the Rings to Voldemort and Harry Potter, and we can see that these stories you know, pivot on these themes of good and poor exercise of power. In many ways, the text that we're considering this morning, we're going to be considering for a number of months now. Daniel, the book of Daniel, it's concerned with these same type of themes, kings and kingdoms. Good, and good use of exercise and, and, and authority of power and bad use and exercise of authority and power. So turn to the book of Daniel if you are using one of the Bibles provided. It's on page 737. So the book of Daniel. To, to get into the text a little bit, you know, this is a people that lived a long time ago. You may not be familiar with the people and the, the context, the historical context of what's going on in the book of Daniel. So this is where we are in the history of Israel. Judah had many kings up to this point in their history. They had seen leadership and a good use of authority under godly king, the godly king Hezekiah who also made mistakes as well, though. But Hezekiah and then two kings led the Jews in serving false gods for about 46 years. And then the people forgot their scriptures and they largely forgot God. Israel did, or Judah, under Manasseh and Ammon's reign. Then under King Josiah, there was a great reformation that took place. They found the scriptures. They read the scriptures. There was joy as God was speaking through his word. And under Josiah's leadership, the nation was turning back to God again. It was hope. It was a hopeful time. And Josiah's rule, though, it came to an end when he died in battle. And then the kingdom passed to his second son, Jehoahaz. And Jehoahaz, he ruled for three months. He was wicked. And he, put, he, he was put in chains and he was taken off. Uh, To Egypt in chains, and then at that point, his older brother, then Eliakim, was placed as king in Jerusalem as an under ruler under Pharaoh of Egypt. Or Necho was his name. The Pharaoh even named Eliakim Jehoiakim, signifying a new identity of being under the rule of Egypt. Jehoiakim was was a terrible king who was set up as a puppet king in Egypt so that Egypt could glean off of the taxes of Israel. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 31 through 37. So at first, Jehoiakim seems to have willingly aligned with Egypt, but then when he saw Babylon, and Babylon looked really powerful, he's thinking, nope, Egypt's not for us. We need to align ourselves with Babylon. Well, Babylon invaded much of Egypt and then Judah, and then Jehoiakim seems to have willingly served Nebuchadnezzar's servant, uh, as a servant king, rather, for about three years. He was a vassal king. And during these three years, uh, it it happened that that the book of Daniel really begins. That's where the story of Daniel begins. There would be two more kings, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah in Judah, And 19 more years before Jerusalem would completely fall to Babylon. So the prophets Micah, Isaiah, they prophesied about 140 years before Daniel. Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah prophesied about 35 years before the book of Daniel. And then the prophet Ezekiel prophesied during the same time as Daniel took place. So the words of the prophets... They're all coming true. If Israel would continue to walk away from God, would continue to give themselves to the idolatry of the world, that God would judge them, that they would face His judgment. So Daniel it begins in 605 B.C. in Daniel chapter 1 verse 1, and it goes through the, the last state that's mentioned in the book in Jan, Daniel chapter 10 verse 1, which would be 537 B.C., the prophet Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. You can see that throughout the text. Uh, and the text spans about 80 years, or not 80 years, 68 years, rather, of Daniel's life. And generally speaking, the book has two main divisions, so chapter 1 through chapter 6. And I'm just setting this up. I'm not going to say this every single week as we're going through Daniel, so just so you know. So take notes now. Uh, but chapters 1 through 6, it's a biographical tracing of Daniel's witness in the royal court of Babylon. And then chapters 7 through 12 are a record of his visions, of of God's purposes for the future. So, chapter 1 through 6, and then chapter 7 through 12. Okay? So, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Well, this is God's holy word. Here's the big idea of the text God keeps his word and he preserves his people in exile. God keeps his word and he preserves his people in exile. And here's the outline of the sermon. Number one, God is in control. Two, how the world works. And three, what is your identity? So number one, God is in control. Verses one through two again, I'll read it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Daniel is a book about God. It's a book about reality. It takes place in a real historical context. It's not a bunch of ad hoc stories that were compiled for someone after the exile of the Jews to encourage them in the midst of exile. It's set in history. You know, you might roll your eyes at talking about so much of the historical context leading up to this, but we have to understand the setting of where God's word takes place. So in verse 2, we see that it's a book about how the one true and living God intersects with with real life, true life on the ground, existential reality. He's intimately involved even in this, in the midst of the exile of his people. And some people have found verse 1 about Nebuchadnezzar there to be, in the beginning of his reign, there to be confusing. Uh, and, and the only reason I'm talking about this is because if you go out and you talk to people that aren't Christians, they're going to say, well, eh, the Bible's wrong. It's not telling the truth. You know, some have found uh, verse 1 to be confusing because Nebuchadnezzar began to reign in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. You know, but look at the text. What does it say there? This is the third year. Well, how could he have led the siege in Jerusalem in the third year and then lead the people away? if that's true in historical context. Well, first, the text doesn't specify that the exile only happened in the time after Nebuchadnezzar's coronation. He was the king of Babylon. And the people that David is writing to know that Nebuchadnezzar would be known by that title. You know, the king of Babylon. It'd be like if you said, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the the governor of california well he was a while ago he was in that movie you know you'd see critical scholars in a 100 years would freak out because he wasn't the governor at the same time that he was in those movies but you're using that title if he was a governor well no no that's not how we talk in human language now, he was he's known as the, the governor of california but he was also in those movies the people knew what daniel meant in the text and then second, Nebuchadnezzar was sharing in and came in the command of his father, the king. There's no contradiction or corruption in the text here, despite what some might claim. It's similar to how Mark, and we talked about this earlier in the year, as, or actually it was last year, 2014, where Mark refers to the time of Abiathar, the high priest, when David ate the bread of the presence in Mark chapter 2, verses 25-26. through 26. You know, some look at passages like these and they try to undermine the reliability of the Bible. It's an argument based on a bias of wanting to find error. Because there's just not an error there. It's as if all understanding of how human beings communicate is thrown out because they want to think that this book cannot be true. Well, it's just not it's just not true. Well, the Bible is true. All right, so back to the main point of the text. Daniel is a book about God. So look at verse 2 again. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So put yourself in the place of Israel. Imagine yourself as a Jew and you're reading that. Is God defeated? Will God lose? Are the kingdoms of this world more powerful than the kingdom of the one true and living God? No. But God is and will do what he said that he would do. He's keeping his word. He has foretold that the the people, if they continue to reject him, they will go off Into exile. God warned them as a nation, even at the beginning of the foundation of Israel, at the beginning of their nation, when they came out in the Exodus from Egypt. Listen to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24 through 30. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out, when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And then reading through the prophets and the history of the Hebrews, we know that God gave them over to this exile, to Babylon, because of one thing. Because of their sin. Because of their rejection of God. God warned them again and again about what would happen if they turned away from them. And listen to this promise even in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 6-9. through If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then... I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for myself I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold uh, on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. And that's where we are. That's where we are in this text. The people didn't listen. And at the beginning of Daniel, we see the fulfillment of God's word to their horror. Brothers and sisters, don't believe the lies that sin will make you more happy than obeying and seeking God. don't, Don't believe the lies that entertainment of this world will be more satisfying than giving yourselves to the word of God and to his people in a local church. Don't spend your life on forming alliances with the world and letting your heart run after every little thing, all the while rejecting the God that you say that you believe in. Have Him as the supreme desire of your heart. Love God. Believe in Him. In Daniel, God is disciplining His people by sending them off into exile. And it's not a pretty picture. Read Lamentations later today. Babylon came in killing people. It wasn't like they just plucked these people off and and took them to another place. No, they killed their leaders. And I won't get into some of the more gory details of it, but you can read about that in the word of God. God's up to more than just disciplining his people, as we'll see throughout the rest of Daniel. But right here at the very beginning, take note of the fact that God is serious about his people and he will do what he has said in his word. So, you can call yourself a Christian every single day of the week. You know, if, if your heart, if you, if you have not been given a new heart, if you're not seeing your life transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in, in conjunction with the Word of God, oh, well, friends, examine yourself. And God, He has not lost. His kingdom is a more powerful kingdom. It looks like it's down, it looks like it's out, but it is not. Though this world would crush the people of God, take everything that is precious to them, putting it in their temples to try and show that their false gods are more powerful, more beautiful somehow than the one true and living God. No, God is still on his throne. In this text that we read this morning, it looks like God is lost, but he's about something else. He's actually about the salvation of more than just his people, but of the nation's. He's exposing the people of Babylon to his people and to his word. Consider that. And brothers and sisters, God has not lost. God knows what is going to happen here. He he spoke through his prophets about it. So even in the face of God's punishment for the sake of his glory so that his people might repent, God has told them that this seeming superpower boasting in their false god Marduk was greater somehow than Yahweh. No, that, that nation would face God's judgment as well. Only 70 years. God is inescapable. He's unstoppable. So ask yourself, what is your hope in? In the face of your sin, in the face of God's just judgment, what is your hope in? We need the rock of a Christ Who is more powerful than the kingdoms of this world? The Son of Man that we'll consider in Daniel chapter 7, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We need the Savior that Daniel was looking for to save us from our sin and our exile in this world as we walk as sojourners and strangers in this land. God has not lost. The false no gods of this world are empty and they're powerless. Even though the world tries to boast in them. And that leads to the next point. How does the world work? How does the world work? Look at verses 3-5. through Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to, to teach them the literature, and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Will our sin and the kingdoms of this world play on our desires? When nations conquer nations, it doesn't work very well to just Come in with brute strength and raw power and expect the obedience and the submission of a people. That's why there's a psychological element of war. If you want to win the hearts and the minds of Americans, what should you do? Go for the young leaders, educate them, indoctrination and assimilation, you know, enfolding them into your culture. Conform them to the cultural gods and the societal worldview of this world. And remember, these were the kids from the royal family and the nobility in Israel, in Judah. If Babylon can win them, it's going to be much easier to win the rest of Judah. And There's still 19 years and two sieges before the fall of Judah. And the royal family in verse 3 can also be translated as the seed of the kingdom. This was the family that Judah was looking for, a king who would be on David's throne forever into the future. This was a nation that had a lot of hope in this kingly lineage in the royal family in Judah. And we don't know for sure, but Nebuchadnezzar, he may have known what the Jews believed. What better way to win the people than by influencing and conforming the royal family? and the nobility, and the leaders of the people that they had so much hope in. If you can enfold them into Babylon. You know, they didn't have news media. They didn't have commercials. They didn't have television. You know, so if they can get these guys enfolded into the culture and the the thinking of Babylon, it's a walking commercial. It's a walking advertisement for the beauty of this kingdom that has come in and overthrown what they think to be a weak god of Yahweh. They would be walking commercials. And these young men, they were brilliant. You know, Some commentators have pointed out the fact that learning Akkadian language in three years, it's almost unthinkable because it's a difficult language to master. And in these verses, we see the wiles and ways of how the kingdom of this world works. So first, isolation and influence. The world tries to isolate and the world tries to influence. Uh, in October, NPR did a spot on a movie, on a film that's coming out, or that came out. It's called The, the Beasts of No Nation. It's directed by Kerry Fukunaga. And this is what he described the, the movie is about training up young boys in Africa for war. And here's what Fu- Fukunaga said. What I demonstrate in this film is not at all different from what happens in rebel groups, in wars, any war that basically indoctrinates children to become, becoming fighters and killers. And it's a pretty quick process. Even when we were casting the film, we spent some time in Sierra Leone with some former combatants, some of whom were child soldiers and some of whom were commanders. And some kids were watching us as we were doing some of the castings, and I asked them, How quickly could you turn these kids into soldiers? And he says, Watch me. Give me 15 minutes. And he took these kids and they got them into marching order and they had them learn some chants. And he said, I could probably put these kids in combat if I had a few more hours if I had to. The world goes after the young. They go after the kids. Because they're more easily shaped. They're more easily taught. They're more easily influenced. Uh, one of the, the father, fathers of mo- modern public education, John Dewey, wrote this uh, a book in the 1800s. It's called A Common Faith. Uh, and he, he was talking about how in the common schools, he saw uh, the common schools, is what he called them, as a mechanism for indoctrinating children to a new democratic faith to make America into more of a melting pot and erasing the, the worldviews and the es- eccentricities of their family, making America more unified by wiping away their differences. He understood that to do this, kids had to be liberated from the prejudices and the values, as he described, of their parents. This is the method of the kingdoms of this world, in opposition to the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying that public schools are necessarily evil. Okay? Don't hear me saying that. But we have to be aware of the mechanisms that this world would use to shape us. You know, we have a lot of teachers in here. I'm not trying to offend. But John Dewey, an influencer of public schools, that's what he was thinking, you know. So it reminds me of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you know, brothers and sisters, we can't just go with our guts. We can't just click onto autopilot in this world. This is one of the reasons that Jesus prayed for us in the high priestly prayer that Sheila read for us earlier in John chapter 17, verses 15 through 19, it says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, speaking Jesus talking to his heavenly father, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Well, the truth of God's word and of the good news of salvation by faith alone and the substitutionary death of Christ alone. That's how we fight. Stealing ourselves up in our faith in the power and the strength of Jesus Christ crucified. Hold firm to this. And we can't just trust that culture is neutral. I think that sometimes we just think that, oh, it's just an innocent thing, culture. Everything has an agenda. You know, we don't just go with the flow. And God's people are non-conformists with the world. And pray that God would continue to grow us up in Christ. Pray and pursue godly influence even in your life. What are the things of the world that are trying to isolate you and influence you away from God and from His people? What are the things in this world that are trying to, that you're tempted to reach out to and to believe is the world would teach you about how to think about certain things, about how to think about gender, about how to think about life, how to think about interactions between the sexes, or whatever it might be. And second, you can see the scheme of the world is to inflate pride and to puff up with knowledge. I remember feeling a sense of awe when we first moved to Washington, D.C., just walking around in the Capitol and in the, the Senate and the House office buildings, there's a sense of m- almost majesty of that place and the way that they have built the architecture of certain buildings. You just and There's a history, you know, not that there's not a history here, but there's a little bit more of a history you know, there with the country. There's a, there's a sense of gravity to so much that felt like what was going on there. It's the closest thing that I can relate to in verse 4, stand in, to stand in the king's palace. You know, John Wesley wrote this, thinking of worldly kingdoms. I was in the robe chamber, and he's thinking of the king of England. I was in the robe chamber adjoined to the house of lords when the king put on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. And is this all the world can give even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford, a blanket of ermine around his shoulders so heavy and cumbersome he can scarce move under it, a huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head. Alas, what a bauble is human greatness, and even this will not endure. You know, we are so easily wrapped up in awe by a book by a movie, by a building, or whatever it might be. Oh, we need to guard our affections, reserve them for the king who is seated upon his throne, even as we see in the throne room, in the chamber in Isaiah chapter 6, who is high and lifted up, of who the heavenly hosts sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You know, And standing in the, in the, the palace of the king in Babylon, that's not just something that anybody could do. This was a kingdom that had one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens. And I can only imagine how beautiful the palace was. To stand there would be to lift up the ego and to lift up and inflate the pride. And knowledge puffs up too. If you get an education, you feel a sense of actually being something. I've accomplished something. I'm smart. I have a title after my name. I've been licensed in whatever it might be. I'm worthy of respect and honor you know almost every good guy who is in a fiction uh, book or movie or whatever it is, is is always corrupted by some kind of promise of power you know almost every uh, everything that we can see that the world would tempt us away with is trying to inflate the ego puffing up you know something you know, you're a master of this knowledge more than this person, even though they may have more of an education in that than you do. You know, We think that we are so wise. In the world, it's a good psychologist. It knows our hearts, and it knows what we are tempted by. Now read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters sometime. Friends, know your hearts and your temptations so that you can hold firm in the, in the truth in the face of the temptations of this world. Number three, pleasure. You can see that in verse 5, they were assigned the same food and wine as the king. You know, I'd like to have a personal cook like the president. You know, that'd be nice. And here these guys are, right there, eating the same stuff, enjoying the same privilege. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to win them by showing that Babylon can please them more than what seemed to have pleased them before. It's as if he's saying, is this... The same luxury that you had in Judah? Were you able to live this high life? Is this what you had? I crushed that. And now you're having this here in the glory of this kingdom. Is your God unable to provide this for you as well? You can almost hear those kinds of taunts. In Babylon, it didn't just want the land. It wanted the minds and the hearts of the people, it wanted uh, to convince the people, and so you can see this first exile, these first exiles going in, and he's going after the the people who are known, the famous, the celebrity, so that as they go back in and they continue to try and conquer Judah, that they can convince the people this is this is something, and the world's no different today. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. They are opposed to each other. And the battlefield of this this war, of these two kingdoms, is your heart and it's your mind. You are caught up in the middle of a war. Are you suited up for battle? What kingdom are you part of? What kingdom is influencing your mind and your heart? And that leads to the last point. What is your identity? Look at verses six through seven. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. You know, we considered this as was, we went through Genesis, but giving somebody a name is an exercise of an authority and is an exercise of dominion. And what's in a name? You know, what does your name mean? Well, how do we pick names in our society? I think that we often pick names just because I like it. Hey, that sounds kind of cool. I don't really care what it means, but that's a cool name. You know? and for the Jews, the name was connected to their identity. It was connected to their relationship with God. They're connected to their identity as a people, as a covenant people from the line of Abraham, And even as we see, as God makes covenants with his people, he he changes their name. Like Abram, his name is, he's given a new name by the authority of God, Abram. His very identity from then forward would be uh, identified with God and his kingdom and his people and his promises. So in Israel, names often had a connection to their understanding of who they were as God's people. Their identity is rooted in their king and their God. So you can see that another ploy is for the world to reach for your identity of how you think about yourself. So what does he do? He renames them. So each one of these names had some kind of identification with God. Yahweh or Yah or, or El in their name. So Daniel, that meant God is judge. And he changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Lady Ishtar, protect the king, or May Marduk protect his life? So he's re-identifying Daniel with the false gods of Babylon. Hananiah means one who has obtained mercy from God. He's renamed Shadrach, which means inspiration of the sun, which the Babylonians worshipped. So you can see that they're trying to basically stomp the name of God in the dust. Number three, Mishael, means required or demanded by God. Meshach means the goddess of shock. And number four, Azariah means the help of God or whom one whom God helps. And Abednego, the new name, it means servant of shining fire, which they also worshipped in Babylon. So ask yourself that question. What's your identity? It may not have anything to do with your name. But what is your identity? How do you think about yourself? You know, what often defines us is the stuff that we do. You know, our hobbies, the things that we actively participate in. We're often defined by our relationships. Mom, dad, son, daughter, brother, sister. We could go on. Geography. We could be identified by our geography. American, Iowan, Des Moinesan, uh, Polk Countyan, you, you, you I mean, you could get more narrow, and then you get down to your surname, of who, what family you're a part of. We can identify ourselves by what we look like, black, white, or whatever. Morality. We can identify ourselves by being good, or being a bad person, or a person that likes sports, or music, or uh, education, or whatever it might be. Observable reality. Often we define ourselves by all these kinds of things. And it's not totally bad. I mean, we do these things. I look a certain way. It's not wrong for you to be like, well, he's an American citizen and, and he plays soccer or whatever it might be. No, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But that's not the ultimate thing that should define me. You know what, What's the ultimate thing that defines each of us? Can you think of what that might be? What, what's the thing that you love the most? What can, controls what, what gives you happiness or joy? What are you afraid of? Often those things are more true sense of what defines us. Ultimately, though, we are defined in our identity by our relationship to God. Either as a vessel of his wrath, expecting of his certain judgment to come, or of his salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So many things are trying to claim you. That's why there's so many commercials. That's why there's so many advertisements all these gimmicks of the world are trying to claim you, that you would find your identity in that thing. It's the psychological ploy of this world. How can you sell your product? Well, you got to tap into somebody's identity somehow. you got to get into their mind and into their hearts. You know, I watch commercials uh, by an insurance company, and they're talking about kids and wanting to provide for the family or something like that. I'm thinking, that's a great insurance company. Because I'm probably going to get sick at some point in my life. And I need my family to be taken care of. Or, you know, I I don't know what it is. You just think about some of those advertisements that might touch upon your heart and the things that you desire. Your friends, family, society may may want you uh, to name your identity, but all of it will be exposed as meaningless in the sight of God. What is your relationship with God? The world can call you whatever it wants, only find your identity. In God, as a child of God, through his covenant forged in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. From this world, and from the flesh, and the devil. And even as we walk in this world, as we can relate even in some sense to Daniel here and his three companions. That we are exiles here in this world. We're in this world, but we are not of it. This is not our home. Do you live like your home is in this world, or do you live like your home is with Christ in God? Do you live like this world is more powerful than the kingdom of God? You know, what kingdom do you identify with? What kingdom sets your identity of how you think about yourself, about how you make decisions? about how you think about where you live, about where you go, about, about what job you should take. And how does your identity in Christ impact that? And if, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, oh, friend, any other identity other than in Christ alone will not satisfy you. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ who came to live the life that none of us have lived, to die the death That each of us deserve. The world can exile us. It can hurt us. It can kill us. But our allegiance remains with Christ our King. And Daniel is an entree into. How to think about that from God's word. And praise God that even. The fallen kingdoms of this world. Can only be saved through Jesus Christ. Even as judgment is coming for Babylon. In the future. Well, the first seven verses of Daniel, it's a historical calibration to everything that is going to happen in the rest of the book. This is a prophet living in the midst of exile, but even here we see that God is still in control and that we are caught up in the conflict of these kingdoms. And we're going to have wounds. We're going to feel it. We're going to have sadness. But we'll also have a deep-seated joy because we know we have a King who is the, the king over a kingdom that is more powerful than the kingdoms of this world. We live as citizens of a kingdom through Christ that gives us our true identity, colored by God's covenant love for his people in Christ. And well, What kingdom are you a part of? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book, even as we just considered this morning some of the historical introduction to Daniel. Lord, we pray that even as we leave this place, that you would cause us to be strong in our faith because we have a strong Savior. Father, we pray that you would help us to, to not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds through your gospel, through your word. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from our temptation to want to find allegiance and identity in so many things in this world that would leave us empty and unsatisfied. Father, we pray that you would help us to see that through Christ we have all things. And God, we pray that you would help us to live in light of your kingdom in, in the rest of this day and the coming week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.